Every year there are various organizations in America that get together to decide the American English Word of the Year. In 2020, the Word of the Year was pandemic. I became interested in this list of Words of the Year, and I realized that the words are very thematic. That is, they are related to a theme that went on in our country. And in 2015, the Word of the Year in America was identity. Identity. The concept of personal identity is very important. Because who you believe to, to be, who you are, affects how you live. And, and many of us, if we're honest, struggle with our personal identity. Our culture is constantly trying to get us to put our identity in something other than the God of the Bible. Who am I? What's my self-worth? Even after coming to Jesus and believing in Him and trusting in Him and wanting to walk with Him, we might struggle with these feelings of, what is my identity in? Is it my family? Is it my job? Where do I get my ultimate satisfaction and joy from life? Who am I? This is very important to understand because who you believe yourself to be affects how you live. And what we see in this passage from the book of Colossians is that you are united with Christ. But what does it mean to experience this union with Christ? And how should this affect the way we live? We've been going through this sermon series in the book of Colossians, trying to go verse by verse, explaining, illustrating, and applying these words for our time. And so far, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, was dealing with a lot of false teaching. Damnable errors like asceticism, which means don't experience any pleasure, and if you do that, you please God, or dietary restrictions, the worship of angels, all kinds of weird taboo stuff. And then Paul comes on the scene, says, no, 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 Christ is Lord, Christ is God, Christ is the one you, who you should worship. It's a very Christ-centered letter. And after dealing with these implications of these false teachings in the church, Paul now shifts. We're in chapter 3. We're seeing a shift in the letter. And now he starts talking about ethical implications. Okay, Christ is Lord. That false teaching stuff is not good. Don't believe that. Believe in Jesus. How do I live? This is the shift in the letter that he starts to address that issue of how this should affect the way we should live. And we've, we got 17 verses on our hands. It's Time is limited, so we can't squeeze out everything here. But what we see is that because you are in, united in Christ, I, three so what's for you. First, we must set our minds and hearts on heavenly values, verses 1 through 4. Second, we must take off certain vices, verses 5 through 11. Third, we must put on certain virtues. Verses 12 through 17. So we look at the first verse and then Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If, since, therefore, since what? Since you've been raised with Christ. What? Raised with Christ? What do you mean? He goes on to say things like, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Died? What do you mean, Paul? I'm still living. He says, raised with Christ. You have died. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul, what, what do you mean by this? This is where Paul starts to talk about the doctrine. Doctrine just means teaching of union with Christ. When I say union, I'm not talking about union station. I'm not talking about a union worker. I'm talking about this identification with Christ that you take on the moment you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. This is, this is a very important thing to grasp. In fact, Kevin DeYoung, a pastor and an author, says, union with Christ might be the most important doctrine you've never heard of. So, so what is this union with Christ? One book by an author who, who wrote an entire book on this subject, he says this. Union with Christ means Christ is in you and you are in Christ. This is a powerful teaching. Part of this is somewhat mysterious. Maybe our minds cannot fully 100% comprehend this. There's an element of mystery here, maybe even a little mystical but this really genuinely means that Christ is in you through the power of the Holy Spirit and you are in Christ. This means that when Christ died on the cross in our place for our sins, in some sense, you died. When he was buried, in some sense, you were buried. When he rose, so did you. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we've been raised with Christ in the heavenly places. In, in none of Paul's 13 letters does he ever use the word Christian. We say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. A great thing to say. But Paul never uses that word. He actually uses an expression, in Christ, over 200 times. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Elsewhere, he says, you've been crucified with Christ. No longer do I live, but Christ lives in me. He says, we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We've been buried with him. This means that all the, the benefits of salvation, like being chosen by God, having a right relationship with God, one day being made perfect in the new heavens and new earth, are all possible because of this union with Christ. Christ lives in you and you are in Christ. This is this tight intimate relationship that believers enjoy as a result of trusting in Jesus. And this union with Christ gives us freedom to live for him and not really care, not be crippled by what others think. Reminds me of a story I read about a, a, a woman who growing up she felt like, okay, if I'm good, I'll be accepted. If I'm not good, I'll be rejected. 
she was the kind of person who just struggled with this sense of shame. Shame is I'm, I am wrong. Guilt is I did wrong. She felt this shame just that many of us feel since birth or throughout our childhood, various wounds we've never dealt with properly. And as a result, she believed these lies about herself, that she wasn't good enough, she wasn't pretty enough, she wasn't accepted or loved. And she got a job at Disneyland as Mickey Mouse. Um, and, and she was working there, and she would put on the costume Disneyland. People would come up to her and run to her and say, oh, I love, I love Mickey Mouse, and hug her, and want to take a picture with her. And she, for the first time, she felt alive. Finally, she was getting the responses that she was wanted. In Mickey Mouse, different receiving the response, it, it changed the way she lived. And she became a Christian many years later, and she was able to understand this concept of being in Christ. Before we feel this shame and guilt and insecurity, now I'm free, I'm hidden, I'm covered. As a result, this affects the way that we live. That's part of what it means to be in Christ. It changes our attitude and how we relate with other people. And Paul says in verse 4, he says, Christ who is your life. I love that word there, is. He doesn't say that Christ is an add-on to your life. A good supplement. Just believe in Jesus and then after that do whatever you want. Come to church on Sundays, maybe another time, and just throughout the week, I'll just do, I'll live according to my own standards. No, he says, Christ is your life. In, in chapter 1, he says he's preeminent, which is first place. That Christ is first place in my life, and everything else centers around that reality. Not that, oh, I add on a little bit of Jesus to get me through hard times, or a little bit of Jesus just for some good religion. He doesn't say that. He says, Christ is your life. That course he is if you have received this identification this new union then he will be your life he is preeminent and so the response of this union with christ of us being in jesus and jesus being in us through the power of the holy spirit the application he says in verse two he says set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth set your minds that can be translated as think Present tense means constantly be thinking, setting your minds, verse 2, setting your heart, verse 1, on the things that are above. What does that mean? It doesn't mean think about heaven all day long. It doesn't mean live your life in the clouds. To set your minds on things that are above, what does that mean? In his commentary on Colossians New Testament scholar Douglas Moo writes, Believers seek the things above by deliberately and daily committing ourselves to the values of the heavenly kingdom and living out those values. Another commentator writes, The godly man or woman will regularly assess whether their ambitions and lifestyles are consistent with the ultimate goal to which God has called them, i.e. heaven itself where he rules. So our union with Christ teaches that we should adopt these heavenly values, set our minds and hearts on things above. 
But this union with Christ gives us security in the context of personal relationships. It gives us a humble confidence. On the one side of the spectrum, we won't be domineering, constantly bragging about our accomplishments, needing to be the center of attention. We're secure. We're hidden. On the other side of things, it, we, we can say no to others. We don't have to say yes to every request. We, we're not crippled by what other people think of us. We certainly want to be godly, but we have to realize that sometimes pleasing the Lord may mean disappointing people. We won't be affirmation junkies constantly worrying what other people think about us. We won't be crushed by criticism. It's the reality of the security, the union of Christ affects your heart at a deep level. It will provide a sweet confidence and security in the Lord. That where you, you could love people without needing them. That's part of what the union of Christ does for us. So not only do we have this great security in Christ that we're, we're, we're hidden. Usually, verse 3 says we're hidden in Christ. Usually people who are hiding or looking for shelter or security. He says, hey, you already have that security. You already have that shelter in Christ. His work has been accredited to you. Not only do we adopt these heavenly mindsets, but he, he then throughout the, the passage, he starts to list off things we should take off. Virtues to take on. Okay, I'm in Christ. What does this mean? Well, part of what this means is to put sin to death. That's what he says. Verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he, he provides two lists of sins. Put to death. He doesn't say, if you think this is a good idea, let me give you a recommendation. Think about this. No, he says, put to death these sins. And then he gives two lists of sins. The first one is sexual sins, or mostly sexual sins, and the other one is the context of interpersonal relationships. So verse 5, he mentions sexual immorality. The Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea. That's where we get the word pornography. It's any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. He mentions impurity. Just working through the list here, verse 5. Passion, this is sexual lust or selfish ambition. Evil desire or greed. Then, then the, the next list in verse 8, he says, because of your union with Christ, put, put these sins to death. What are they? He says this, unrighteous anger, wrath, malice, which is the quality or state of wickedness. Uh, he says, don't let there, don't lie, don't be, don't let there be obscene talk from your mouth. He says, slander, do not slander other people. The word slander means to utter false charges or misrepresent other people for the, for the sake of hurting their reputation. The Greek word for slanderer is diabolos, the same word for devil. As many people have noted throughout the years, Slander and devil means the same thing. 
many times I've seen on social media, someone posts something, political party they don't like, someone, a leader, a, a person in their own church, before verifying the facts, before consulting to make sure they have the correct information, it's a quick post. How many times have I seen a company crumble or a church crumble because of one post that wasn't even true? And so, so Paul lists these serious sins and he says, this is not you anymore. This, this sexual immorality, th- this context of interpersonal relationships with this gossip and slander and wickedness, no, that, that's not you. He even mentions in verse 7, he says, once... Once you used to live like this, but now, verse 8, once you were apart from God, under the wrath of God, sinning in many different ways, and some of you, this is your testimony throughout junior high and high school and college and maybe later, your, your life was very far from the God of the Bible, and then you received Jesus as Lord and Savior, and there, there was a decisive break with sin. And this is the reminder that Paul said, that's not you anymore. I love the hope behind this passage. It's not like Paul says, wait, you committed a sexual sin once? No hope for you. He doesn't say that. You slandered somebody? There was malice? There was wickedness? You did it once, you're done. He doesn't say that. There's hope. Even for those who are far from God, there's hope available if one turns from sin and puts their trust in Christ. So so we're to put these sins to death, all the ones I just mentioned in verse 5 and verse 8. How? How do we put these sins to death? I read a story about a pastor who was counseling someone, and the the someone struggled with same-sex attraction. SSA. He, He was a Christian. He is a Christian. He loves Jesus. He trusted in Jesus. He's in Christ. Various things, various hearts' desires, various experiences from the past. There was this thing in his heart. And he was, he was talking to the pastor. And I read this story in like 2012 or 13. And he was talking to his mentor, the pastor, and said, I'm really struggling with this. In fact, tonight I'm going to this certain kind of bar. These are my plans for the evening. Tremendous honesty talking to a pastor about that. And the pastor just replied, I don't think you will because that's not who you are. I read that story in like 2012, 2013. This past week I opened up that book and I read that story again. When I first read it, I thought, that's not good enough advice. That's too weak. There's, there needs to be stronger, a stronger statement than that. But as I reflected on that story over the years and seeing this passage here, I think, you know, that's actually really good counsel. He, he doesn't shame the guy. He doesn't guilt trip him. He doesn't scare him to death. He just says, that's not who you are. So, so we ask this question, I'm, I'm in Christ. I have this union with Christ. I want to put these sins to death. What do I do? Well, Paul doesn't say, and I'm just looking at the passage, he doesn't say, well, read your Bible and pray. That's a good thing to do. He doesn't say, go to church and make 
fellowship a regular part of your week. He doesn't say that. That's a really good thing to do. He doesn't say spend a couple of days fasting and then listen to some good music on YouTube. That would be a good thing to do. He doesn't say that. Paul essentially says the same thing. That's not who you are anymore. Verse 9 and 10, he's saying this. Seeing that you have put off the old self, the old you, with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. You have put off that lifestyle. You've made a decisive break. He says you're being renewed, verse 10. That also is in present tense. That means a present, constant transformation. That if you're in Christ, all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And the moment you believe in Jesus, you are justified. You have a right relationship with God. And the righteousness of Christ is given to you. And now for the rest of our lives, we live under this covenant with God, this beautiful relationship where we want to obey Him because we were created to know Him and make Him known. But we still struggle. None of us in this room could say, I'm perfect. But that expression there, being renewed, shows that God Himself is more zealous for your transformation and becoming more like Christ than you are yourself. And because of your union with Christ, you are secure, and the Holy Spirit lives in you and is working to renew you even when you don't feel like it. There's a new power, a new spirit that's adopted once one comes into Christ. The most frequent New Testament image of a life changed from a life of sin to a life of righteousness, from a life of not walking with God, to now walking with God is a change of clothes. Changing clothes. So first we, we take off the dirty, the old clothes. That's what he says. Now we keeping in step with this imagery, we put on the new. What's the new? Those are the virtues to put on. Verses 12 through 17. He says this. Before we get to the virtues though, this is what he says. Put on, right, so we, we, we're killing sin by the power of the Spirit, but we're putting on, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved. I love that. Before Paul says, this is what I want you to do, although he gets there, he says, this is who you are. You're chosen by God. Not everyone is. He says, you're holy, you're set apart. He says, you're beloved. That means you're deeply loved by God. He says, you're, this is who you are. So he reminds his readers who they are, and then he tells them to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Those are the, the attributes of the kingdom. Very similar to the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians, we did a sermon series on this. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's a common denominator. Paul says, you're in Christ now. Put on these virtues. You ask, well, how do I know if I have those virtues? Paul answers that in the next question. He says, next verse, bearing with one another. 
And if one has a complaint against another, verse 13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So how, how do we know if we, because our own hearts like to tell us we're doing great. We, our hearts find justification for anything. How do I know if I, this compassion, this kindness, humility, meekness, patience, how do I know if this is working in me? It's, it's right there in the passage, going verse by verse. He says that you'll, you'll bear with other Christians and you'll forgive others. Bearing with one another, not, not in situations of abuse, but in situations of annoy, annoyance. You, you tolerate with other people. You put up with them. You're long-suffering. You don't just burn the bridge with people if they annoy you the first time. In our church context, we have various generations of people born throughout the years and throughout the decades. And the way that generations think is different from other generations. We have various personality types. Some of us are extroverted. We get energy by being with people or introverted. We get energy by being alone. Some of us are straightforward thinkers, analytical Others of us are more verbal processors and we're more emotional. Some are structured, love organization. Some are very spontaneous and kind of go with the flow. If you hang out with people who are different from you long enough, they're going to irritate you. They're going to really frustrate you. This, this is, there is no exception to this rule. There's constantly going to be misunderstanding, room for gossip, room for avoidance it's, it's not easy it, it really isn't but what paul says here is bear, bear with one another he says forgive one another forgive those annoying people who drive you crazy why because christ has forgiven you and you're the one your sin is the one that sent them to the cross so if you can't forgive someone else for something little they did against you, but Christ can forgive you for all of your sins, what does that say for your understanding of the gospel? Put, put on love. This, this is a sign. This is, this is what it means to be a Christian, to exercise our union with Christ. That, that we experience this throughout the passage. He talks about being thankful, teaching one another, singing songs, and doing, doing all of this for the glory of Christ. A friend of mine was telling me about his parents and how they did with respect to parenting them. It's like a lot of people my age just complain about their parents. It's like some of your generations, we don't do that. But I, I, I almost don't have any friends that don't regularly complain about their parents. There has been this shift where there's less gratitude, less thankfulness less appreciation for what other generations have gone through to make America what it is. And I see that in my generation a lot, where there's just always bickering about mom and dad. And a friend of mine was telling me about his parents. And finally, for once, someone my age had something good to say about their parents. And it was so refreshing for me to hear that. And he, he, he was honest, he said, you know, my parents, just like any parents, had their stuff. But my parents would always look at me, ever since I was young, 
and look at me and say, I'll paraphrase, you are a child of God, so act like it. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. He says they didn't get everything right. No, no parents get everything right. No, none of us can say we do. But hearing his parents say this over and over and over again throughout his adolescence changed the way he thought about himself. And now he's walking with Christ faithfully. That's what it means to experience this union with Christ. Paul doesn't come in heavy handed and shame and guilt people. He says, no, 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 you're different. Act like it. Be who you are. And when we do that, we will put off these virtues, put off these sins, put on these virtues. And we want to honor Christ in everything we say and do. You are a child of God. So act like it. Let's pray. Father, we all have insecurities. We all have issues in our lives. We all have things in our hearts where we need the reality of the union with Christ to change us. Lord, I just want to pray for those who are struggling with childhood wounds, things that happened before 18 that we've never talked about, things we've carried with us our whole lives. Pray, God, bring supernatural healing. Lord, please help us to understand that we are united with Christ. And please allow this to affect the way we live. Lord, for those of us in Christ, we are children of the living God. Please help us to act like it. In Jesus' name, amen.